Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast, episode number 110. My name is Delton. I'll be your host this evening, and with me, as usual, is my lovely wife and yellow player, Haley. Hello, and welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. We are a podcast all about board games, role-playing games, tabletop games, card games, dice games. I've mixed all those up compared to my normal pattern, but any kind of games like that, as well as generally beer. We ain't firing on all cylinders today, my friends. The way the beer popped when I took the cap off, I was real worried I was going to get a foam overflow. That looks beautiful. So, Delton has just popped open a bourbon barrel-aged Burroughs Stout from Anthem Brewing Co. And this is actually a bottle we got for our fake wedding back in 2015. So this is a seven-year-old bottle of beer that we are finally opening up today. We decided to have this beer, one, because for reasons that will be discussed, we haven't left our house in, I guess it'll be two weeks today. We have not left our house aside from walking Marge across the neighborhood. And two, it sounded really, really good. It was our real wedding, by the way. Was it our real wedding? Because Kyle got us this. Girl Kyle. Yes. Kyle got us this. Um, We were still in school. It was when she came over. And we were putting together my Viking outfit outfit for the medieval fair. That's right. So it was we were still in school. So it was for our real wedding, not just the uh, we call it our fake wedding, but it's really just basically a ceremony and reception that's not legally binding. But yes, this is from Anthem Brewing Co. It is a Ouroboros stout that has been aged in bourbon barrels. Um, this is one pint and nine point four fluid ounces. Basically, it's two full pint glasses. I don't know what the alcohol percentage is, but it smells like 25%. Ouroboros normally is between, I want to say between 8 and 10, but it's been a while since I've had one. Um, I don't like their new can redesign logo. I love the look of the old can. The new can makes me sad, but it still looks decent. And this is the cool bottle that has an actual Ouroboros and like special labeling, which I really like. It's a giant bottle. And yes, it is black as night. You cannot see through any of this. You can smell the bourbon because the thing with bourbon barrels, a lot of people don't know when uh, the bourbon barrels are done with bourbon and you give them to somebody for like a beer company to soak their beer in. Essentially, the beer then pulls in something to do with the way that it works. It pulls the a little bit of the bourbon out of the wood, gets a little bit of that wood flavor, but also actually pulls out the bourbon that soaked in. And so in a way, you get a little bit of bourbon in there, which is why the taste changes so much. I've been legitimately drunk probably five times in my life is all where I could say, okay, at that moment I was intoxicated. And one of the times was from Anthem's bourbon barrel aged golden one. Yes, I remember getting that. And I remember getting that drunk. And your mom made me toast because she's a nice lady. She did. Uh, But that goes to show like I rarely ever uh, enjoy beer that much. But man, their bourbon barrel, everything they do is great. This is so good. I just took a sip. It's very delicate. It's like, it's not, it's not creamy heavy, but it's definitely a thick beer, but it comes in real smooth. It has the finish of rum. Almost. It kind of does almost. It's a sweetness, even though it's bourbon barrels. Now think, keep this in mind. This has been sitting in our fridge and aging since 2015. Seven years. So, because that's the thing. A lot of people don't know this, and this is always a fun fact I like to point out. If you have a beer 
Once beer breaks about six to seven, I'm going to say 6% alcohol by volume, but especially eight and up, you can actually age it. It will last a long time with that much alcohol as long as you keep it out of the sunlight and in a consistent temperature environment. If it's getting hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, it's going to spoil. But if you can keep it at a consistent temperature, preferably cool, uh, in the fridge, in a basement, in a very well-controlled room, something like that, you can actually age beer out for quite a while. I've got some Chimay from like 2014, I think. I think the Chimay's from 2014, is that right? No, or I earlier. think that's from early. That's from like 20, at least 2013, because we were still living in the apartment. Okay, and Chimay is 9%. Uh, it's Chimay Blue, one of my favorite, if not my favorite beer ever. Um, I've got some of it still chilling in, uh, it's in an armoire, chilling in the back in the dark. And it's amazing. If you can age a high point beer like that, it's worth it because as it ages, the the uh, it matures, the flavor develops, the hops come down, the sweetness balances out, and you you can end up with a much better beer. That's the thing. When you talk about drinking a beer fresh from the brewery, it's always delicious. But taking that high beer, high alcohol beer, and then aging it for several years, then drinking it actually does a lot for it as long as it hasn't had high sun exposure, and temperature fluctuations. And uh, I still have, I know we've, we've had it on the podcast on our 100th episode, but I still have Bigfoot from 2013, from 2014. But I think, and I mean, this might sound a little little too deep for this topic, but I think that, you know, the, the last couple of years, you know, with everything being topsy-turvy and, you know, there's been a lot of grief and pain and stress and whatnot, I feel like it's kind of reoriented us as well when it comes to um, enjoying things. For sure. There's been a lot of beers we have been aging in our refrigerator since like 13, 14. And not necessarily that our alcohol consumption has increased over the pandemic. Because I don't think that's the case. Nope. But it's a lot, we have made more time to you know have nights together where we do open up one of those beers that we've been aging. Like we had, we've had multiple of those aged beers. Or maybe before we might have one a year. Or like one on a special occasion, but like tonight, I mean, it's a Saturday night and in January, we're just recording the podcast and Dalton was like, you know what, let's, let's have this bourbon barrel aged out. It's, it's not a special occasion. I mean, every day is a special occasion when I'm with Dalton, Day. but it's, it's nice to just sit and enjoy it just because. It is. It's nice to kick back and, re- I mean, here's the thing. Uh, and, and this is, this is an outlook, um, that I've noticed a lot of come up recently uh, in, in all different the ages and walks of life, what's the point of just holding on to something if you're never going to enjoy it? And that's, for me, that's these high-end beers. It's these special things. It's the things that we buy and we said, oh, on a special occasion, on a special occasion. And then it's been years and years. We could have enjoyed this together sooner. And so it's one of those things I think that the pandemic has allowed us to uh, better appreciate the moments we get something special rather than waiting for the special moments. Does that make sense? Yeah, and then like also kind of creating those special moments too. Yeah, you can make them yourself. You don't need to suddenly get a, I don't know, a high grade on your test or, hey, guess what? It's your birthday. Just Maybe it's just a Sunday and you just feel like, you know what? Today's a good day. Let's make it even better. And you can do that. That's what we're doing. Yeah. With a fantastic beer. Now, I am glad we aged this one seven years because it's freaking delicious. It is very good. It's very smooth. It's barely barely any hops at all that you can taste. I'm going to be sipping on this one for a couple hours, too. You get a lot of bourbon in it. You get a lot of malt forward, of course, being a stout. 
it's very, very good. Their standard Ouroboros is good. This is good. If you've ever uh, ever have the chance to buy anything from Anthem Brewing Company, they do make very good beers, a lot of Belgian style on the light end, and uh, their stouts are super good. So the big reason that we're drinking this tonight, not only that we decided to just enjoy it, but uh, we haven't left the house in two weeks because we both got COVID. We did. I know the last time we spoke was the morning before our friend's birthday party. However, my symptoms started the next day, that Sunday, when the podcast released, and no one else at the party had any kind of symptoms. There are only like five of us there. So I don't know where I get it. I literally do not leave the house. In that previous two weeks, I especially did not leave the house without wearing a mask and hand sanitizing and disinfecting my phone when I get home. Yep. So I think that COVID has now become a computer virus that you can get because that's the only way I've had interactions with people unmasked. It was weird because we went to Brian's and all that was fine. And Sunday, Haley was like, ah, you know, not feeling super great. And we were, we've all had allergies this time of year. Oklahoma right now has been going between 20 degree days and 60 degree days rapidly, day by day, jumping and dropping and up and down, which causes massive allergies for 90% of people here. Uh, And so everyone's having that. Well, the problem is the new Omicron variant of COVID acts like allergies. So we were like, ah, it's just our allergies kicking in because we've had allergies for weeks now. And keep getting tested every time we get allergies. Yes, keep getting tested and be negative. But Monday came around, Haley didn't feel great. Tuesday came around, Haley didn't feel great. Wednesday came around. and Was it Thursday we got tests? It was a, well, I went by myself first. Yes. I went Tuesday and got a test. Right. And... I think Thursday it came back. Thursday morning it came back positive. And I was like, oh my God. And it was like Thursday. I couldn't focus. Like I sat in front of my computer for an hour and a half and just stared. And I like looked at the time. I was like, oh my God, 90 minutes have passed. Where did they go? How am I here? So for me, it was weird. Like the first three days, it was mostly allergies. Then like Wednesday night, it was uh, my lungs kind of felt like I was drowning. And I woke up Thursday and I had brain fog. I still felt drowny. Um, Friday was the same way. Saturday, 100% fine. Everything was great. Just a little bit of a sniffle. Sunday, got a headache that lasted until Thursday. And with that came loss of taste and loss of smell. So we're kind of thinking you might have had the Delta variant rather than Omicron. Because I guess Delta is the one that you lose taste and smell the most. Omicron doesn't have that. But it was so mild, too. Like the, the, the taste and smell would be gone in the morning, start to come back in the evening, then gone in the morning. Yeah. Um, Delta was the one that lasts a lot longer, I think. But I don't know. Which but I had it. I was te- and I tested yeah. positive three times throughout my excursion. Yep. And uh, finally tested negative on Thursday. Delta is still technically positive. Yep. So we can't leave the house this weekend. Yes. I will be getting tested Sunday that this releases in hopes that because uh, the place that we use, Emmy Labs here in Oklahoma, they have a place here in Edmond we can go, and uh, they've been getting results back in like less than eighteen hours, like fourteen hours or something. Yeah. Well, I got for mine. A, P- a full PCR test. I got mine same day last time. Yeah, I did too. It was just that evening, so I'm doing that Sunday in hopes that I'm negative, so that way I can return to work Monday because I've been working from home. But that has kept us at home. Just a few things to say though. One, Delta and I are very grateful and very lucky that we are in jobs that you know we can work from home for sure like i've been working from home for the last two years haven't worn shoes to work since march 2020 and like i plan to keep it so we're very fortunate in that way you know it was a rough two weeks but we do have a lot of things to be grateful for 
you know, and something I am really grateful for is, you know, Delta and I, we were super strict for a good year and three or four months till we both got vaccinated. Like all through 2020 and until Delton became fully vaccinated in early 2021, well, me too. Like we didn't do anything. We didn't go to a restaurant. Nope. Uh, I went to my aunt's funeral. It was the only um, gathering I went to and I wore a mask. I was the only one in that funeral that wore a mask, but I wore a mask the whole time. And around my family, I wore a mask. Like we didn't do anything. We sheltered in place. And now getting the, the getting COVID, I'm so glad that we, you know, sheltered in place, at least until we got vaccinated. I mean, we're still, like I said, we still mask up when we go out. We still... Of course, we're still cautious we're still and cautious. still super limiting yeah. our exposure to people. We don't get out. We still order groceries and everything. But what I'm grateful for is that we got vaccinated and boosted before we got this. Because Delton yes. had very mild symptoms. Mine were probably more on the moderate side, but still, there was, like I said, I couldn't think for a few like, days. I didn't run a fever at all. Haley ran a fever, fever for a couple days, but it wasn't super high. Thank goodness. I just can't imagine going through this unvaccinated, so I'm very grateful that we were able to get vaccinated before yes. our first we're, exposure. We're very fortunate that we've yes. not only vaccinated and boosted, but that we had very mild symptoms and that we yes. are healthy coming out of it. Yes. and that we're we Very, had, very fortunate. We had the ability to stay in place. I know that yes. a lot of people don't. A lot of people have children and a lot of people have jobs that don't allow them to. And a lot of people... Also live in this capitalist society that doesn't really want to help you when you're sick. And our heart goes out to everyone. You know, we appreciate everyone who reached out to check on us when we had COVID. We are on the mend. It's got to get Delton testing negative. And then we're going to be, I'm about to say, staying positive throughout the week. But we don't want to stay positive. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have a better week. I hope so. I'm, I'll hopefully be back at work Monday or at least Tuesday because I'm tired of working on the couch. It's 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 getting to me now, but that's okay. But that's where we've been the last two weeks, keeping it simple and also not really doing a lot because Haley's brain couldn't handle it for a while. I did get really obsessed with Vietnam War for a little bit there. Probably still now. That's true. You've been doing that. We've been watching travel videos to all kinds of places. We found a really good channel that we like on YouTube called Suitcase Monkey, and it is a couple from England. It is a... Guy and a girl, uh, she's originally from Japan. I believe he's originally from England. Mm -hmm. And they travel to Vietnam and Sri Lanka and Japan and uh, Kenya and all over the place. And they make travel videos that are very well made. And we've been kind of obsessed with watching their videos and kind of seeing what everything's about. So we've been doing a lot of that. Yeah, we found it because I, I started reading a book on the history of Vietnam and then the history of the Vietnam War, which in Vietnam is called the America War. Makes which sense. Man, that was a little jarring. We're like, that yeah, makes sense. And oh my God, that war was just uh, so heartbreaking and so wild. But the history of Vietnam is a very rich history. Uh, it's a very rich culture dating back hundreds, even thousands of years. And so we, I was like, let's look what it's going to be like if we ever get to travel to Vietnam. We looked it up and that's going to be on our bucket list. I want to go to Vietnam. For sure. I've always wanted to because my dad was in the Vietnam War and he got to go, given much different time for him and different experience, uh, you know, PTSD and all that comes along with that kind of uh, uh, very difficult task that they went through. But it's a gorgeous country. And he talked about before when he was there, even at that time, he said, it's beautiful. The mountains are gorgeous. The weather's hot, but it's beautiful. And he doesn't want to travel anywhere anymore. He's old. He said he's done traveling. But 
it's always made me want to see Vietnam. So seeing people go and just see awesome stuff, I'm like, man, this place really is amazing. And I feel like it's something people don't travel to enough, you know. And in that video, Suitcase Monkey, like they, they go to a museum about the American War, the Vietnam War. And that's something that, you know, if we do go, yeah, uh, I really do want to go and really understand because you know, I'm of course, I'm yeah. reading a book, and both the book's written by a white guy who was a journalist in the in the Vietnam War. So there's right. a, definitely a cultural lens that's being viewed through. But I, I feel like, you know, part of that trip should be also understanding what the United States did. 100%. It's going to be a, a hard, sad experience based on the few photos they showed in their video. Yeah. But I think it is 100% something that's uh, almost necessary upon traveling to Vietnam is understanding the history better of, the you know, what has happened. And us going as Americans being respectful of that culture and wanting yes. to learn of the culture and learn about the historical experience and what our ancestors did and the effects it's still currently having. But yep. Vietnam looks like a beautiful country. It does. And the culture looks fantastic. I cannot wait to go. And I know that COVID, I know I'm saying this as I just got over COVID and like there's travel restrictions, but I'm like, hey man, I can, it's just like whenever I got my tonsils taken out and we watched like 40 Anthony Bourdain episodes. Yes, we did. I can travel the world vicariously and and learn and come to understand. I agree. So we've been doing that, prepping for travel in the future and uh, just trying to enjoy our time at home where we, you know, I really wanted a boba tea, but I couldn't go get boba tea. So I'm really excited to hopefully be negative so I can get a boba tea. As soon as you're <laughs> negative, we're going the freaking boba tea. Yes, I'm, I'm ready to go. But the good news is, since we're feeling so much better, we finally had time to sit down and play a game that we're going to talk about on the podcast. Oh, here's the door. It's straight ahead. It's, it's a game. So the game for today... I picked this up at the BGG Bazaar in 2021. We went down to BGG Con. I talked about that experience. You can always go to our episode 106 to listen to our time and our experiences uh, going to a convention during a pandemic and letting you know how that was. Uh, well, I picked this up in the Bazaar. We found somebody selling it unplayed, unpunched, unstickered. And being the bazaar, Haley haggled them down a little bit, and I got an amazing price on a game I've always wanted. You should dispatch me for all your haggling needs. I really do need you to. This is Sekigahara, The Unification of Japan, published by GMT Games. Sekigahara is designed and development by Matt Calkins. Art director was Roger B. McGowan, as well as package design. The map and block art is Mark Mahaffey. Rules layout, Neil Randall and Mark Simonich. Production coordination was Tony Curtis. And there are some more credits that are very long. I won't bore you with all of those, but a lot of people went into making this game. So Sekigahara, The Unification of Japan, is a board game, a war game, that takes place over the course of seven rounds, each of which are a week in the game's timeline. And it is a uh, essentially your own time to be able to play the Battle of Sekigahara, which was a war in Japan at the beginning, I guess, of the 1600s, if not 1600 itself. Uh, once the battle was over, that is when, historically, the Tokugawa shogunate took over and ruled most of Japan for, I believe it's... 268 years. 268 years until 1856? I think so. We watched a video on YouTube about the history last night. And I've looked a little bit up before, but it's a, it's a very vast history and a lot of stuff happened as every war you hear about it, you're like, dates. 
And then you dig a little further and you're like, oh, complications. And then you dig further and you realize how vast and how many uh, cogs and pieces were turning for wartime. So it's hard to get everything. But yes, it lasted, I believe, until 1856, which is when the capital city at the time of Edo turned its name into Tokyo. And that was the end of the feudal era in Japan and the end of the uh, Tokugawa shogunate. So in this game, you are one player versus the other. It's a two-player only game. One of the players assumes the roles of Tokugawa Ieyasu, the most powerful daimyo in Japan, which historically is the winner of this battle. And then the other player plays Ishida Mitsunari, who was champion of a warlord's child heir. So he was champion for the heir who... Oh, that one's funny, the name. It's oh, Do you have the name? I'm sorry. I do. It is Toyotomi Hideyori. So his father Correct. was ruling southern Japan. Whenever he passed away, right before he passed away when the child was five, he asked all of his uh, warlord alliances to basically pledge themselves to protect the heir and make sure that he grows up to be of age and knowing how to run the country. And so he was basically volunteering as tribute to fight for, on behalf of the boy, right? Yes, and Ishida was the main guy uh, for that side, and Tokugawa was on the other side uh, as the one who decided that he didn't like the way things were going anymore, all that good stuff. So the game takes place over seven weeks, one of you playing Ishida, one of you playing Tokugawa, and you play by using blocks on a map of Japan. You compete in battles, and the board represents Central Honshu, which is the main island of Japan, where Kyoto and Tokyo used to be called Edo, and it is Edo in this game, because, of, like I said, it's not Tokyo until 200-some years later. Uh, so it takes place on uh, Central Honshu. You will be using blocks. Each block represents about 5,000 units of an army. And the way the game is going to work is it's an interesting uh, abstract version of a war game where you each have blocks representing these armies. The blocks are... Uh, notated with stickers you put on them only on one side which means only you get to see what your armies are your opponent knows how many armies you have in a region but they don't know exactly what those armies are each of those blocks also have what are called moan which is essentially a daimyo's symbol so uh whether it's it's uh for example there's two that are crossed scythes there's one that's uh some sort of three-petaled like leaf which is the tokugawa shogunate logo and those are the different clans from japan um, so each side has so many clans that are part of this war. So you have your blocks on the battlefield. Uh, some of them set up, started where they're supposed to, seated always the same way. Then there are random ones drawn on top of that. So during the game, you're going to be able to use cards from your hand to notate how many moves you make. You get to move blocks around on the board, and then you also get to initiate battles, and the cards from your hands also are going to tell you which units in your little army of blocks you have in a location can be deployed into battle. Sounds kind of funky. This game is not as complicated as it first seems. It's just that I've never played a game with the same style of rules. So it made it uh, a, quite the learn and quite the teach. The good thing is I won, so that was nice. Boo. The bad thing is, uh, not bad thing, but it was about three hours and 15 minutes. Uh, if you take out the times we had to stop to clarify some rules, I think about two and a half hours of actual playtime, not including teaching in any of that. 
So it is a longer game, so be prepared to sit down for a while. But what's so interesting about the game is uh, not only that your army units are hidden from your opponent, but I like the fact, and I talked to Haley about this, that the cards in your hand are used for multiple things. Because I always love multi-use cards or having to have a decision on your turn. And I feel like the cards in your hand really give you uh, constant decision-making to make because at the beginning of every week, you get to choose one of those cards. They all have a value in the bottom right that is strictly for, you're going to discard it secretly, like face down. You both reveal, and whoever has the higher number gets to choose who goes first on the two turns for that week because there's a turn A and turn B. So not only do you have to decide which card to use for that, you also have to then decide, okay, if I'm going to spend a card to get more movement or two cards to get mo more movement or another card on top of that to force my army to march further, which ones am I discarding? Because those won't be available if there's going to be combat. And the cards themselves share the same moan or clan symbol as the blocks. So each block can only actually participate or be deployed into battle if you play a card with its matching symbol. So then you have to decide, okay, if I burn this card for movement, do I have a card to actually do combat at this area where I think my opponent's fixing to move and attack me? So there's a lot of decisions to be made in the game, and I find that to be awesome because I felt engaged the entire time, aside from when I had to check a few rules. I did too. You know, uh, I, I, I do like this game because, like Dylan said, you do feel engaged between the rounds, but it's also one of those games where you can plan multiple rounds in advance. I think there was, there was one moment where I told Dalton I had I had three rounds planned and you know you, you can't plan your entire strategy for the whole game probably by turn one but it's a good mixture of you know having to watch each round to see what your opponent does and you know make those calculations as they play but it also has the type of strategy where you can plan three or four turns in advance and so you kind of have a trajectory to go even as you're waiting for the other player to make their moves. That's very true, and so it's nice because your opponent, they can derail your strategy, but not necessarily by a ton, because even if, uh, let's say it's, it's one of our turns, and let's say, you know, kind of like how the game had, right? I had a huge army in Osaka. That's like the center of uh, the Tokugawa side, it, or not, sorry, not Tokugawa, the Ishida side. Uh, the center of the Ishida side is in Osaka, right next to Kyoto, and... Uh, the Tokugawa side comes out of Edo. That's their capital and their like home city. So I have a giant army in Osaka, and right next door is Kyoto. Well, Haley had brought an army in to Kyoto at one point, and I decided just to attack and just straight up go for it. But the good thing is, is when you have a combat in this game, because combat in games, I always feel like is either one-sided or it's kind of wonky. Like, I don't know, combat in most war games, I never know how I feel about it. But I like the way Sekigahara presents it because you're only able to, like I said, deploy your units in the army actually into the fight when you can play a card that matches the moan or the clan symbol. And the same goes for your opponent, right? So if I attack, I start and I play one. Haley then gets to play one. And each block that you put into the combat by deploying it is going to uh, apply what they call impact. And essentially, it's a number of, like, here's your military strength. This is how much impact this unit is having on the battle. You total your impact. There's a track. You can keep track of it. Uh, the game kind of has a fun um, set collection feel to combat. So if I play one that has the moan of the two sides, 
uh, let's say he has three symbols on him. He now gives me three impact. If I play another card that gives me a block with scythes and it has two scythes on it, he gets two for him plus one for the existing scythes, uh, for the existing block that has scythes on it. They, they're technically named by the clan name. So um, if you played a Tokugawa block and you played another Tokugawa block, it gets another point for each other Tokugawa block. Um, but I don't remember all of the names because I'm terrible at remembering them. And also, uh, they don't push them really strongly. So you don't see them in the combat. You only see them on the cards. You really just see the symbols. Yeah, you really see the symbols. That's what you focus on. So I like that element. But what, uh, what I'm getting at is when you play, you both build up impact. For every seven impact you have built, your opponent must remove a block that they uh, sent or deployed into combat. If you have built up enough impact for them to remove multiple and they didn't put that many into the combat deployed, they, you can then remove from their undeployed units and they get the choices. So it's really interesting that no matter what, if you do decently in the combat, you're both removing people, which I think is an accurate representation. Unlike some games where it's like, I move and roll dice, I kill some of these people. Well, if you think about it, combat should be happening both ways at the same time in that moment. So why wouldn't I also be rolling dice in that same scenario? This is kind of an interesting take on that because it's based on, is your hand of cards built? And also, it's not going to completely derail you from your plans, which is where this all comes from. I'm realizing my brain is jumping around a lot. Um, it's not going to derail you completely because they can't just wipe your whole army out, but you're also taking some of their army with you. So it's really nice that you can still have those plans, still have a big combat, and then still potentially be able to stick to those plans uh, if you can win that combat or at least hold out enough. And I like it too because, uh, for example, around the board there are these castles, or are the castles or church cathedrals? Castles. 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 And so... Uh, at the end of the game, which we'll we'll kind of get to this, like whoever has the most castles, like that can be a winning condition. And so if you're in a castle, if you have one to two armies at a castle, uh, and let's say I have one to two armies at a castle and Delton comes in and wants to take it over, I can actually hide in the castle. I can choose either do combat or hide in the castle, and then there's a siege. And so in the siege, let's say I'm hiding in the castle, have my two armies in there. I cannot fight but Delton can play cards to try and kill my people. Yes. So in a, in a normal combat, both of you play, both of you lose units, and then whoever has the least impact of the two of you when the combat's over will lose an extra unit. When somebody's in a castle like that, it's only one or two blocks, no more. They don't get to contribute to the battle, only the person besieging the castle. It also limits any special abilities, which I'll talk about after this, uh, and if you just because you didn't play anything, even though you're, you know, kind of losing the battle, you actually don't lose any extra. So unless they can do, if you have two people in the castle, unless they can do 14 impact in a single turn, you're going to have another turn of controlling that castle, which really makes it a lot easier to maintain hold on a castle location because they are worth points at the end of the game. So at the end of the game, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do end of the game and then remind me to come back and do special abilities. At the end of the game, if no one has won, so each side has a winning condition. The Tokugawa side can win by either killing the Ishida block or the Toyotomi disc, which resides in Osaka. If they eliminate either one of those during combat, the game ends and the Tokugawa side wins. The Ishida side can win by eliminating the, the Tokugawa block wherever he is on the board. 
The other condition is if it goes all seven weeks of the game, then it comes down to points. Resource cities, which have a red dot instead of a black, are worth one point apiece, and castles are worth two points apiece. There's only a max of 21 points on the board total. Castles do have a natural alignment. If no one is on that space, they naturally go with their alignment. Uh, the red dot resource cities are whoever last passed through them or who is ever uh, currently occupying them. That's who controls it. So holding those castles was how I ended up taking the game at the end. Haley had a lot of control on the board, and I took uh, basically my armies and forced through as fast as I could, rushing to the castles and then tucking my people inside. And then while she was attacking them, I tried to then take resource cities to make sure I had a point lead. Yeah, so Delton did a really good job because his initial strategy, I think, was uh, protecting his base, making sure his uh, leader didn't die or that wasn't able to take over Osaka. And then uh, as the game went on, we got into about week five. So through week five, my uh, my strategy was I'm going to put a, a decoy army over by Osaka to scare Delton. I'm going to have my real army split in two up north. One of them held my leader, so Delton didn't know which one was which. It was a smaller one that had my leader. And then I just kind of traipsed across the country, uh, you know, trying to uh, take over as many castles as I could, take over as many resources as I could. And my whole strategy was I'm just going to wait it out because Delton's not moving anywhere. So it was by like turn f- week four, so we're like eight turns in, Delton hadn't moved anywhere. And I was like, all right, that's going to be my thing. I had like one army at each of these places just to kind of hold. And then like halfway through week five, so we have like two and a half turns left. Delton's like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and take over all of Japan. So he just starts moving like these big four block <laughs> things across the map, completely changes his strategy, does a 180. And I didn't plan for that because I only had one block at each city. And if Delton moves in, so the rule is if someone moves into your city and they have four times as many blocks as you do, yours are at, are automatically dead. So all my places that had one block, Delton just comes traipsing in with four and just automatically kills mine without any kind of combat. And so I learned my lesson and I will do differently next time. <laughs> but it, it was really fun. I, I love to see the different strategies. But again, something I really liked about this game is Delton was able to change his strategy on a dime. Like he didn't have to, it wasn't like, oh, I've been playing this strategy for, you know, half the game. I'm kind of stuck here. It's not like a lot of Euro games where if you like go heavy military or you go heavy science, then you're kind of stuck in that route. There's no really way to catch up. No, Delton was able to like change his strategy on a dime, completely change what he was doing and go for points rather than protection. Yeah, it was interesting because basically my strategy for the game was to slowly eliminate as many of your blocks as I could until I had the ability to take stuff back. And it took to the end to do it, but my thing was like, I'm going to keep whittling away and whittling away and whittling away and doing all the damage I could and taking out this one unit army or this two block army and slowly do that. And then I finally realized at the end, I was like, I, I mean, I think I took almost double the blocks you did by the end of the game. Oh, definitely. And I was like, now I have the freedom to move and take stuff over. So it worked out for me. Um, it was really handy. And then, like I said, I got in those castles. Haley came to siege my castles and couldn't do it. Part of the reason she can't, I meant to bring this up a minute ago. There are special abilities on some of the blocks. They have guns and they have cavalry, a little guy on a horse. Some of the cards you play when you play one to deploy a block. So let's say I play the two cross sides and to deploy a scythe block. If the card with the two cross sides, the showing that symbol, 
If it has a sword on it, and you'll see it's on the left or right, have swords, that activates the special ability of the, the block you are currently deploying. If it's a sword, uh, sorry, if it's a gun or a cavalry, basically it adds two points uh, of impact. However, you also get two points of impact for every previous gun or cavalry, depending on what you're de deploying at the time. Uh, it adds two points for each existing one you've already played. So if I had played one with a gun, played one with a gun, then I play another one with a gun that has swords on the card, I would get six extra impact just for that. Castles don't allow that in the siege, which means it's harder to take over a castle with two people. We also found out historically there's a reason they put that in the game, because there was a battle where a clan held up in a castle. I think they said it was like 2,000 units in the castle against uh, no, I'm sorry, was it 5,000 against 40,000 attacking units, and it took them 10 days to take the castle, which is just mind-blowing. But when you've got walls and, you know, that kind of fortification, it makes sense that an army of guys on horses isn't going to do a lot. So I really liked that, the thematic aspect that they threw in there. Yeah, and I liked it too because, like Dalton said, they used guns. And in the video that we watched on the history of Sekigahara in, in the war, uh, the what we learned is that Ishida actually bought uh, guns from the Portuguese because he had opened up a port for the Portuguese to be able to trade in southern Japan, uh, which if you ever want to learn the history of Japanese trade opening up, uh, there's a really good book called Upheaval. Uh, oh, yeah. And it talks about uh, seven different countries and uh, major transitions that they, they did. It was Jared Diamond, who also wrote Guns, Germs, and Steel. But he has a really great overview on uh, Japan opening up trade and what that meant for Japan. But Ishida, uh, you know, trade was allowed with the Portuguese in the southern ports and brought in guns. And so I really like that Sekigahara uh, put that in, too, because there were uh, guns and they, they did play a major role in the war. They really did. That was a that was a critical change because uh, there were no longer archers. It was all. Uh, basically uh, units of guns. And they even talked about, you know, doing a volley, which back then it's black powder. So it takes a minute to reload. But if you've got, you know, a unit of thousands of soldiers and they all shoot at once and it's a volley of, of, of pellets raining on you, that's terrifying. But that is a game changer in the terms of war. So it's neat to see that represented. Uh, I, I know that the talk about this game is probably complicated to um, really grasp. You'll have to look at some pictures of it. I think the big uh, key factors here are your opponent can't see what blocks you have, so they don't know what's coming. They don't know if you have combos of, you know, gunmen. Unless Delton knocks them over. I accidentally knock some over here and there, and sometimes I also <laughs> just set them sideways on the board so Haley could see it all. And there was one point he was taking pictures for the podcast, and he took a picture of his units. And I said, oh, can I see the picture you just took? And he goes, yeah. I was like, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I was just showing her my whole setup, <laughs> which is fine. I didn't actually look. I was just yeah. being a turd. The big key is, you know, it's it's got a fun element in this game because, yes, it's a war game, and it's like the movement in this game is kind of finicky because it's like, ah, you get one movement, but if your army is too big, it loses a movement. But if there's a leader, they can gain one. If it's on highways, they can gain one. If you play a, a discard a card to force them to march, they can gain a movement. Basically, it's like if you get an army so big, you can never move it which is a thing that happens, and I was at that limit unless I split the army up, which I had to do. Um, so there's a lot of you know little rules like that. It is a GMT game, so the rule book is very section 5.2, section 5.2.1, section 5.2.2, section 5.3, 
And on like that, if you've ever read a GMT rulebook, you'll know exactly what I'm saying. Um, I found the Watch It Played video to be very helpful. I watched the entire 37 minutes. Then I reread the rulebook again and felt like I had a better grasp. And now that I've played it, I realize, okay, this isn't as complicated as I thought it was. It's just the fact that it's so different in the way that it works compared to any game I've played before in a very positive manner. I really enjoyed this game a lot. But the fact you can hide your blocks from your opponent, they don't know what you have. You can bring new blocks in in different manners. You have all these decisions with your cards of what to keep because at the beginning of every week, you have to discard half of your hand to your favor. So it could be up or down, depending on rounding, if you have an odd number. And you're going to do different stuff like that uh, and try to build a hand that works well with your actions and your combats you're going for. And I just think it's fun because every turn is a new turn of planning to try to continue your strategy. It's decision-making every single second. And you can still plan turns in advance. And even if your opponent tries to interrupt them, likely they can't 100% derail them, which is nice. And it just kind of hits a lot of the... Uh, uh, hits a lot of the nails on the head for what I think I want from a war game uh, and the fact that I don't know it was just it, 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 it didn't feel like three hours it was just a fun time of us trying to you know navigate this war and figure out who can win and what the strategy is and all that I just had a good time with it I did too and I really like it because GMT they make fantastic war games I love yes. GMT's games but this one was very different in that it uses the blocks. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. So as if the talk on Sekigahara, the unification of Japan by GMT Games was not enough for you. Uh, also, I really hope you understood what I was saying the whole time because holy geez, these kind of games to me are hard to explain how they play because I don't want to go into super detail, but I also want you to understand some of the concepts and I feel like these kind of games are difficult, but... Haley's version. Go for it. You got blocks on the board. You move the blocks across the board. You beat the other player's blocks. You play cards to fight the blocks. You win. There you go. There's the nice and simple... <laughs> Easy description of Sekigahara. Um, our, our top, our uh, game explanations are about to be about 37 seconds long from now on by takeover. <laughs> That's going to be yeah, the whole game of the episode. You're like, ah, yeah, this. And then it's like, all right, on to the topic. And it's just super fast. But uh, Sekigahara was one that we really enjoyed, as you just heard. I really, really like the game. I understand why it's the fifth highest rated war game on BGG. Uh, 166 out of BGG total board games. It, it makes sense why people like this game so much. But I think part of the success of that is the fact that it's a very abstracted war game. Now, we have talked about abstract games in the past, not really at length, but we have discussed an abstract game and others like it. Now, when we say an abstract game, it tends to be a game that either doesn't have a theme or doesn't utilize the theme very heavily. So think of like chess. Technically, it's a king and a queen and a bishop and a rook and a knight and some pawns, which are like soldiers. But really, you don't see it as that, right? You just see it as the piece that it is and how it moves. It's the same thing for Zertz and Gipf, all the games in the Gipf series, and uh, Yisk, Yimps, whatever the... I don't remember the other ones. I only have Zertz Fritz. and Gipf. Fritz. There's so many weird-named games in that. Spats. Uh, but you've got games like Hive, where you're, bu you know, you're bugs in a colony. 
but you're also, it's really just this piece moves this way. We just happen to put a bug on it to make it more interesting. Well, there's an opposite side to that where instead of having a game and then putting something on it like a bug or this is a king and a queen, it's something like Sekigahara where it takes a theme and then adds the abstraction to it. I don't feel like they started with the abstraction and then applied a theme. I feel like they had the theme and applied the abstraction. So I agree. That's, that's a very good point, Del. It's kind of an interesting concept, and there's games that have done this before. Uh, I always point to Pax Pamir as a war-style game that I just really absolutely love. But even though Pax Pamir has a lot of theme in all the cards that you have, the actual blocks on the board, the tribes on the board, the, the bridges or roads between the sections on the board are all very abstracted. And that, that again, wasn't abstracting the theme versus adding theme to the abstract. And I think there's something that works really well for that. So we wanted to talk in this topic about abstracting themes like in Sekigahara and kind of what the pros and cons of some of that are. Because I feel like, uh, you know, there's multiple ways to view it. So in my view of Sekigahara, I think abstraction works very well. Because not only are the blocks representing, you know, 5,000 soldiers at a time, when you look at the blocks, you see symbols. You see this is like a lotus leaf, basically. This is a line with four dots, you know, and there's multiple of them. You don't look at these blocks and think of people. You don't look at the blocks and think, these are soldiers going to war. This really happened. Most of these died. It takes away the heft without taking away the history. And it's, it's, that could be, that this is exactly where the pros cons comes in because you don't want it to wipe that out for the fun of the game, but you also want it to be an enjoyable experience where unlike something like the game that Haley won't play, and I'm blanking on it right now, about World War I people in the trenches. Yes. Um, oh, goodness gracious, I can't think of the name of the game. You can Google it real quick and find it. But unlike something like that, it takes away a bit of that, I want to say human element, it takes a bit away from the sadness and sorrow of what was happening at the time and allows you to recreate and explore the topic, explore the theme. The grizzled. The grizzled. Thank you. Uh, it's the grizzled based on World War I in the trenches. It's a cooperative game, supposed to be phenomenal, but also it's a very heavy subject. Um, Sekigahara, you know, it's a, it's a big moment in history of Japan, arguably by a lot from what I understand to be the biggest moment in the history of Japan. Um, as the game says, the unification of Japan after this, you know, it was under relative peace for 256 years until they changed it. Somebody took over, you know, changed the name of Edo to Tokyo and went on with more modern day. But I think when you abstract those things, it takes out that personal attachment a bit to where A, it makes the game more fun, potentially. But B, I think what that does is allow you to look at it uh, from a lens of the whole rather than the parts. and uh, But that's also just how I look at it. I think that the abstraction of the game is kind of a double-edged sword. Um, and it depends on the game. It depends on the work. Because, like, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, if, for example, and I could be completely wrong. I'm just, like, making guesses. But, you know, I think about my, my brother-in-law's brothers. Um, you know, they were in the Iraq War. And both of them have purple hearts. Both of them have post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. Like, both of them, like, suffer a lot from being in, in the war. And 
I can't imagine putting a game on the table and be like, hey, let's play an abstract version of the Iraq War. Uh, playing Labyrinth? Playing Labyrinth. From like, GMT? I, like, I, I, I don't want, when we talk about like abstracting a game, like, I like Sekigahara because it does abstract it, but it also presents you with the history. It presents you with the understanding. And granted, I read part of the history of that, but then we watched uh, some YouTube videos on it last night on the history. So I, I, which we, which we want to do. Like I want anytime I play a war game, it's me personally. I just want to make sure I understand, you know, what, what really happened, you know, who was at play, what were the atrocities, because I want us to be careful not to romanticize it. And in a way, I feel like Sekigahara, in that it is abstracted, it leads to less romanticization. You know, I talked about early in the podcast, you know, reading um, a history book about Vietnam and the Vietnam War and, like, the after effects. And I feel like in American culture, especially right now in our day and age, like, the the Vietnam War is kind of romanticized. When you think about the Credence Clearwater Revival song, Fortunate Son, you think about flying into Vietnam in your helicopters, Forrest Gump, and, like, going to go, you know, spread freedom across. And, like, I feel like there were, the America's role in the Vietnam War is often romanticized in media. And, you know, think about Good Morning Vietnam and, like, yeah, there's Robin Williams. Yeah, there's lighthearted moments. But, like, what were we there for? And, like, I want to be careful when we talk about these, when we talk about war games and we, you know, play out actually wars. Like, we want to be mindful of what actually happened. Why do these wars take place? You know, what were the atrocities that were done? You know, who lost their lives? Like, have an understanding of the impact, the human impact of these wars and not romanticize it. And in a way, I feel like Seki Gahara does a good job of, you know, it talks about the history, like Delton says. In the rule book, there's a six and a half page, 10 point font history of what happened in the book or in the war. But it also, so it lets you know what happens, but it doesn't allow you to romanticize it. It it presents it in an abstract way you're playing out the war, unlike something like let's say Axis and Allies, where you see soldiers die, or you get to play a side of the United States and get to take over. Like this stuff really happened and I and I don't I don't want to romanticize it, but I want to understand, you know, what happened in the war, who did pass away, what were these atrocities? I want to understand it and not in a way that we make this a fun and game, in a way. I think that makes perfect sense. It's one of those things where you want to you want to dig in and understand the history and learn from what you're playing. So when you talked about the history of this, the rulebook has historical notes section in the back. It's actually six rulebook pages, each of them double columned, lined with text, and only two or three images that tell you the story of what happened at the Battle of Sekigahara and how it all came out. And then it has two pages of design notes. Um, but it's neat to have something that goes into detail telling you that history, even though it's abstracted, or even if it's a game that's not abstracted, when it teaches you something, that's when I think something is, you know, done about it. But like you were saying with romanticization, romanticize it to, to, how would I place that? Romancing. Ro- when, when you, <laughs> when you romanticize romanticization, would that be right? Yeah. The romanticization, if I say it really fast and slur my word, romanticization, then, uh, <laughs> it makes sense when you want to. Uh, so abstracting this does, I think, take away from that. It's not romanticized in Sekigahara. It presents Sekigahara as a historical war 
from the outlook of, I told Haley, I kind of feel like a war general pushing my pieces on the map to showcase what has happened. And I think part of why this game works so well is it does not romanticize because it, if we've learned anything from the history of the Western media world, uh, samurai armor, katanas, Japanese imagery in that way, it's fascinating. It, it, is, it is an absolutely gorgeous and brilliant art that they brought into how they built their armor, how they made their swords. It's, it's a fascinating culture to 90% of Westerners, which is why we love it and games are being made. But this doesn't present that view. Right. So it, it eliminates us being able to romanticize it and be like, oh, yeah, this, that, that, that. We, we, we get out of that and are able to look at this as this is the history of a nation that had a massive war for a hundred days that then unified it under a, a strict rule that kind of kept it peaceful for years. Like this is a massive piece of history that we're learning about and able to recreate in the game. But, the, but we don't have that romanticized view. It's much more of a historical take. Cause like when you talk about something like Sekigahara, so, you know, I brought up, you know, my brother-in-law's brothers, yes. you know, experiencing their experience in Iraq War. I don't know anybody who lived through Sekigahara, and I never will, of course, because that was 400 years ago. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that the the pain didn't happen. It doesn't mean that the war didn't happen, and it doesn't mean that the effects of the war. I mean, effects of the war could have created general generational trauma to this day. The effects of the war could be, you know contributing or changing the culture to this day and so we even though the war happened four or five hundred years ago we still want to be mindful of what happened how it affected the culture and you know and maybe this is really uh really nerdy of me or maybe this is really important to me i don't know i just feel like anytime i play a war game that i need to understand the context of the war one, like Delton said, not to romanticize it, but two, to to not ignore that this was a war. Like, yes, you can be like Seki, Sekigahara, you know, make an abstract game and make a really enjoyable, great game. And technically, the the abstract, like you can you can remove Sekigahara, just make it like a abstract game, like GIF, and like it would still play. But you know, as you're playing through the war of Sekigahara, just being mindful of what happened, I feel like is very important. One to you know, honor the culture, but two, to, to learn something, too. Yeah, learn something that you likely wouldn't otherwise. It's not like when you take world history, you know, in your public school system, it's not like you're going to learn about a lot about Japanese history. That, that's, a, that's a section that after playing this game and looking into it, it's made me want to go look further into the true history of Japan and how it became what it is today. Uh, I, I want to read this short section here from the historical notes in the rule book, because I think that this, um, this is a nice way that tells the significance of this battle of Sekigahara, as well as show, um, I don't know. It, it, it just kind of shows what, what came from this, how it changed so differently, but also how, um, I don't know. It's, I, I found it interesting. Okay. I, I don't really know how to place it, but I found it interesting. It says here, where was it? Do 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 do. Gotta find it. Tokugawa did what Toyotomi could not: domesticate a nation of warriors. Under Toyotomi, for sake of war, conquest of Japan was followed by invasion of Korea. Tokugawa instead made warriors into governors and citizens. 
Tokugawa rule was known as the Bakufu, which means government from tents or governance by soldiers. In the strict class hierarchy of the Tokugawa period, samurai abandoned bloodshed and became members of the governing class. So it was interesting to me because, you know, we're talking about abstracting how it removes the romanticization of that imagery. I mean, you look at something like Rising Sun, which, yes, Rising Sun is embedded more in mythology, um, but Rising Sun has that, you know, that very romanticized kind of element that's basically what that game lives on. And to think about that and think about the samurai and this and that, that text I just read, it was samurais, uh, they abandoned their original cause and they were turned into governing class people. They changed and people became you know, a lot, it just, the, the whole world became different in Japan after this battle and after the Tokugawa shogunate took over. In a way, that in itself is explaining the, un, the, the, the deromanticification. I cannot get that word right. It's not romanticizing. It's taking that away. In I, I found that to match up. Does that make sense it at does. all, or am I just mumbling? No, absolutely myself? makes sense. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm all over the place here. I also had that whole glass of beer. Um, do you want to hear a fact? Go for it. So, the period in which samurais still existed and were still, uh, I guess, trained and working, there's about a 20-year period where fax machines existed in the same era. Really? So, so there's a chance, because fax, faxing was uh, invented, I think, in the 1870s. And so there is a chance that a samurai could have sent a fax. That's crazy. Because the samurai, you know, after after Sekigahara started to die down and become, you know, governance, and it wasn't as common. And if they were, they were almost more like hired mercenaries, from my understanding. And that could be completely wrong, so don't quote me. But that's crazy to think of, because, you know, I mean, that's that's wild. I could see it though. So the fax machine was invented in 1843. Wow. Okay. I never thought the fax machine was that old. Jeez. Last samurai or the abolition of samurais was in 1876. That was when they truly abolished being a samurai? Wow. Yeah. So, again, 1876 Mm -hmm. was the last samurai, and it was not Tom Cruise. (laughs) That's a good one. And the fax machine was 1843. So what is that? 33 years where a samurai could have sent a fax, technically? That's crazy. Yeah, That's I learned crazy. that from a meme, and I fact-checked it, and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> Memes are science now. Memes are truth. Yes. Yes, but yes. So I, I, I think, you know, without rambling on too long, because I feel like I keep getting rambly, uh, I think Sekigahara does it well. I think that they do abstracting very well, because it's, like you said, it's not romanticizing it. It's still letting you have the history and having a fun game. I think abstracting can take away from some games if you let it, but I think in this case it does a very good job all in all. I think that it's like the appropriate take. I think so too. And I'm I am really curious what's going to happen tomorrow when you're editing this podcast. <laughs> right. Because I am also feeling the effects of this like 39% beer <laughs> that we've had. Because normally we, Delton and I split two beers. So we have like one beer, but this one is one beer that's like, a strong 53% beer. alcohol. Yes. And, and we, we're feeling it. We also haven't eaten since lunch at like one o'clock. And, yeah. And it's currently eight o'clock. Hell yeah, brother. So there you go. But yeah, so I really like Sekigahara. I think abstracting in games can be done correctly. It can probably done be done poorly where you're just 
I don't know. I, I think if you did it incorrectly, that would be kind of difficult. It depends on the theme you're approaching with it. But I'm sure that if you abstracted things the wrong way, it would feel like you're taking away... If you did it where it took away history, if you did it where it took away any like reality from the game, I feel like that would be the where the negatives start to come in. But that's a, that's a hard point to argue. And until you can see that example in action, I feel like it would be tough. I need to figure out which PhD track would allow me to write a whole dissertation on this. I don't know, but I bet you could. <laughs> I, bet, I bet so. I bet there's one in the history world somewhere. To be continued. To be continued. Well, I think we've talked enough in general, but definitely on the topic because uh, I don't remember what all we've said at this point. So let's move on to the question to wrap this up. Seki Gahara good. And now, join us for a Malthouse Games podcast special bite-sized question. So the question for today to make this nice and easy, uh, what would you like to make a war game out of? What theme? So I thought about it. What'd you got? So it's two dueling HOAs, homeowners associations, fighting over the right to regulate a communal duck pond. I like it. I like it. It's like one neighborhood and the other neighborhood, and there's a pond between them. Yes. Oh, man. And which one gets to regulate it? Which one gets to decide if the, if the ducks are only allowed to be fed grapes or grain that you have to purchase from the HOA? That's awesome. Also, uh, HOAs are literally the worst thing in existence. But that's a great idea for a war game, <laughs> a war-style game. I don't know how you would present it, but that could be amazing. Just like that. Okay, somebody design it, and then you can buy my theme. Buy the IP from Haley. Yes. Intellectual property, yo. Uh, My idea was a lot more weird. Uh, It was basically the the different sperm fighting to inseminate the egg. That was my idea. Just there's there's an egg and all these sperm are fighting, but like obviously it can only be, there can only be one. So I don't know how you play that out, but I just had the idea that somehow they form factions under their leaders and like maybe somebody could turn on the leader. Dun, dun and take over and, you know, that kind of thing. So that could be fun and dumb. I don't know how you would illustrate that and make it okay, but there you go. Abstraction is needed in that case. I think that we should all drink right now to us all, all of us listeners being the strongest swimmers. I, I drink on my I drink on my beer. I'll drink the last drop. To the strongest swimmers we are. We did it. We did it. Well, <sighs> that needs to do it. it <laughs> This episode devolves. <laughs> this, epi- this episode needs to stop at this point. Uh, I want to give a shout out to all of our Patreon patrons. Thank you so much to Allison, Allen, Jesse, Catherine, Cliff, Cliff, and Jennifer. Oh my gosh, I'm mixing my names up now. I haven't had a beer in a minute. Cliffison. Cliffison and Jiffernern. And uh, thank you so much for listening to the Malthouse Games podcast. They are awesome Patreon patrons. If you want to be like them, Head to patreon.com slash malthousegames, M-A-L-T-H-A-U-S games. They support at the level in which they get shouted out on the podcast. We have multiple other levels. You are free to check that out. Also, don't forget to head to shop.malthousegames.com. Check out our t-shirts with our logo, beer glasses, things like that. It's pretty neat stuff. You can also head to our website, malthousegames.com. Bear with it as it loads, because sometimes it's fairly slow, but it's got all the information about us, what we've done recently, and the games we've covered here on the show. And our beautiful faces. And some of our faces. You can also find us on social media, at Malthouse Games, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitch, all that stuff. Not that we're super active on a lot of it, but Twitter is going to be our most active. 
You can find me personally at Delton Brack, D-E-L-T-O-N-B-R-A-C-K. You can find Haley at S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-L-Y-G-E-E-K. That is at Squirrely Geek. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, a topic you think we need to cover, a game you want us to look at, plans for world domination, or a question to answer on the show, send us an email, contact at malthousegames.com. I think that that's everything for this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, I'm going to go have a glass of water and some food. Hopefully this episode makes sense. We're going to listen to it tomorrow. (laughs) It's going to be like... I'm going to be editing and just be not... I'm not going to know what's happening. We're just going to scrap the episode. That's... I don't want to do that. Jeez. Not after... What is it? Almost an hour and 10 minutes of recording time? You know, I have like episodes after dark. This is episodes after 53% alcohol beers. Yeah, basically, yes. But yes, yeah, so I think that's all. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Malthouse Games Podcast. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe, all that good stuff. Give us a rating on Spotify. Give us a rating on iTunes, all of that. Until next time, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games. We'll see you folks later. Goodbye. Bye.